0: Hi everyone, this is Graham Sate and I'd like to welcome you back to the Nutrition Farming Podcast. Now there are some small changes to the format that I'll mention at this point. As usual, I'll include some humour and some philosophy in the mix, but a new component of this and future episodes will be the inclusion of some important health hints. Now if you've attended my live gigs, you'll know that I really strive to help farmers improve their health, their happiness and their longevity. I've got some expertise in human nutrition, and many growers are simply not aware of strategies that can make a big difference. So every episode from now on will include three health suggestions that I'm hoping will prove helpful to all of you. In episode nine, we're going to talk about phosphate. We're going to continue the phosphate story, but here the focus will be upon releasing locked up pea. So as we previously discussed, phosphate's the energy maestro that drives photosynthesis, it drives plant immunity and flavour. However, the brilliance of the phosphorus torch can be short lived. This triple charged anion is drawn to cations like a moth to the flame. Water soluble phosphorus rapidly forms insoluble compounds, and we lose three quarters of our fertiliser investment within six short weeks. I mean, radioactive tagging shows it actually begins to happen within 24 hours in some instances and in some soils. So there are $10 billion worth of insoluble phosphate locked up in Australian farming soils. Global studies have shown that there's actually over 100 years of phosphate supply locked up beneath our feet. So let's look at how we can get access to that massive frozen reserve. But before we begin that journey, let's talk about some key mineral relationships that can impact the plant availability of phosphorus. Now, the first of those is high iron Many of you will be aware that red soils are notorious in terms of phosphate lockup, and that's because the red colour is iron oxide. So when the triple positively charged iron mineral bonds with the triple negatively charged phosphate iron, it's pretty hard to pull apart that bond. Now, you know, calcium and phosphorus often lock up, and we've got three negatives on two positives with phosphate and calcium, and this is three on three, so so it's a really tight bond. So what we find uh, in the field is that this, these soils respond really well to the use of inoculums of phosphate solubilizing organisms. Now, these can be of fungal origin or they can be bacterial, but, and there are quite a few choices, and we're going to talk about some of those things a little later, and that's, I consider that's pretty much essential in high iron, in those red soils, or, or just high iron soils full stop. Number two is high sulphur so basically sulfur is a major anion along with phosphorus and it has a strong antagonistic effect on phosphate uptake if you oversupply it the most common cause of oversupply is an overdose of gypsum when you're trying to counter high sodium and high magnesium in the soil in those tight closed high sodium high magnesium soils understanding gypsum of course is calcium sulfate It ionizes in the soil, forms magnesium sulfate or sodium sulfate, both of which are very leachable, and hence you improve soil structure and the soil can breathe more efficiently with the use of gypsum, but it's easy to overdo it. It's actually vice versa, high phosphorus can make sulfur less available, they impact each other. So the key guideline here is to try to maintain a one-to-one ratio between phosphorus and sulfur. For example, if you've got 50 parts per million of phosphorus in your soil, then you aim for 50 parts per million of sulfur, and that maximizes uptake of both minerals. So number three is something that I stumbled across some years back, and this is the magnesium to potassium ratio. Uh, And what we found was that we aim for a one-to-one ratio. I'm talking about parts per million here rather than a ratio based on base saturation figures. For example, if you had... 400 parts per million of magnesium on your soil and that was equated to something like 12 percent base saturation which is the sweet spot for magnesium Uh, so you've got plenty of magnesium or you've got the right amount of magnesium then you're going to aim for a minimum of 400 parts per million of potassium in that same soil so basically what we find is that if you can achieve this ratio or move towards that ratio it tends to maximize plant availability of of two important cations, magnesium and potassium. But there's another really interesting finding. What we found is that phosphate uptake increases noticeably when you're checking tissue tests. Now we're, we're looking for luxury levels of P in the leaf. That's part of our big four yield building strategy. So there's a pretty good out- outcome. But why? What, what, what are the dynamics here? Well, basically excess potassium antagonizes the uptake of phosphorus. While magnesium in the right balance stimulates phosphorus uptake so when you get those two key cations in balance in pours the p there's magnesium behind it there's no potassium slowing it down and phosphate pours into the leaf and that's can be a great outcome so number four is high zinc so basically what we're aiming for another ratio we're looking for a 10 to 1 phosphorus to zinc ratio because that works best for both minerals so high phosphorus uh, so you've got 20 to 1, the ratio, for example, that will tie up zinc almost every time. And high zinc, so say you've overdone a zinc-based fungicide and you've got high zinc levels, that can impact phosphorus uptake, particularly if phosphorus is marginal. So what we aim for is this 10 to 1. In terms of parts per million, 10 parts phosphorus to one part zinc, and that's where both minerals kick out, as we say. Number five is over-liming. Very common um, problem that we see out there. Basically, too much calcium, is a, a big mistake if you if you put on too much lime, too much calcium can negatively impact the uptake of seven different minerals. That's why you or your consultant need to have a basic understanding of mineral dynamics and perhaps understand a little about the concept of Albrecht soil balancing. Basically, the idea is this, your soil can comfortably contain or store a certain amount of calcium based upon the CEC of that soil. A, the negatively charged clay houses the calcium ions, so a light sandy soil might just need one tonne of lime based on the small amount of clay there to hold on to it and you say oh well one ton's good let's put more on <laughs> the more on approach and so you put three tons on that soil due to your lack of understanding and that can be worse than not liming Okay, so let's look at some strategies to release your locked-up pee. We'll begin by talking about the use of certain plants. We'll talk about silica and its role. We'll talk about humates. And we'll talk about fulvic acid, mob grazing. We'll talk about how you can make rock phosphate and guano are much more effective uh, in, this, in this particular segment. And then we'll move on and we'll talk about the microbial story and how you can brew your own living fertilisers and really do yourself a really good favour If you understand how to do these things, we'll begin by talking about cocktail cover crops. Of course, we've talked about them in previous podcasts. The simple principle, you know, the concept of the definition of nature is the adherence to natural laws and principles. And so what's the central principle of nature? It's called biodiversity. And what cover crops allow us to do is to bring biodiversity into a scenario Where we forgot about the central principle of nature, we embraced monoculture. It's contrary to to the science of nature, effectively. You know, you select, you feed the same organisms with one crop, you select for the same pests and the same diseases, uh, and you create your own problems. And so how we can counter that mistake, effectively, is to bring in cocktail cover crops, bring in some diversity, understanding that the greater the diversity above ground, the greater the diversity below ground it really is a case of the more the merrier with nature and all this huge diversity and variety of microbial life gives us that sort of protected soil protective soil that we're looking for so you know i've argued that the guy that came up with the concept uh adamir caligari of cocktail cover crops probably should have won or should win a nobel prize for the importance of that finding what what he demonstrated and has shared with us is the concept that you need five families and a cover crop blend so you need to have grasses cereals brassicas legumes and the missing link very commonly is spelt chenopods but pronounced quinopods. that's a small group that includes uh, all of the beet family it includes uh, amaranth quinoa and spinach very small group but you only need one percent of the kinopods in a blend. But what Adam has shown and what the U.S. Ag Department has quantified is that, and it only happens, this this phenomenon only occurs when the five families are present, otherwise it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it's not good to have four species in there, but five is what's required for this, this amazing phenomenon, essentially. What was shown was that when and only when the five are together, the plant roots begin messaging each other and then begin exuding phenolic compounds and quite substantial measurable amounts of these substances. Now, that's what we drink green tea for, because those antioxidants, those powerful antioxidants, affect every one of our 10 trillion cells. Now, the single celled or multi creatures are essentially going to hyperdrive on the presence of that outpouring of antioxidants, is the finding. And so, you know, there are obvious benefits from that diversity of plants feeding, um, you know, 30% of their sugar production is given away to the microbes. And obviously, some of those microbes are phosphate solubilizing. So, we can see some benefits. But let's talk about plants within that cocktail cover crop blend that are specific to boosting phosphate solubilization. So, number one, of course, is legumes. Now, legumes, you'll think of legumes here, they have those little nodules on the base filled with rhizobium that fix nitrogen and they give up some of that nitrogen in the second half of their crop cycle and so that's pretty good for your for the host crop if you've got legumes beneath your cereals which you should have because it works so well Um, but that's just number one of four benefits from legumes number two legumes release acids that break the bond between locked up phosphate and calcium and deliver both of those minerals to the host crop and we're talking about the two most important minerals for the most important process photosynthesis are now made available that's pretty cool for your uh, for your corn crop grown with a clover beneath it for example but the fourth thing may well be the most important and that's the fact that fungi which are so deficient in so many of our soils will accumulate in that acid environment that's what they love so they'll be there beneath the legumes they'll take some of the mini aggregates produced by the bacteria Fungi will come in and wrap that into a larger aggregate and create crumb structure, the most desirable of all soil types. Now, oxygen can freely move into that soil. The organisms, the plant roots, utilise oxygen, then they breathe out and CO2 diffuses from the soil captured by the tiny little pores called stomates and so begins the most important process on the planet, the combination of CO2, water and sunlight in the little sugar factories called chloropass to produce the building block of all things, which all carbon life forms, which is glucose. So it's, it's a massively important process. And basically, as I mentioned, it's it's one of the side effects that improved gas exchange, oxygen and CO2 out, uh, is one of the proven benefits of including legumes and more than one, three, four, five legumes. And of the legumes, research-wise relative to phosphate solubilization, it appears that white lupins may be most effective. Now red clover is pretty good and as I said you want more than one clover in the mix but white lupins are are particularly effective. Now there's another plant that I believe should be in as many cover crops as possible and that plant is buckwheat. Now buckwheat let's explain how buckwheat releases acids because it's not a legume. Basically Here's how it works. When plants take in a cation, a possibly charged mineral called a cation, they have to balance themselves electrically. So they've got to spit out a cation. Now, you wouldn't take in calcium and spit out potassium. It really wouldn't make much sense. You don't take in a food and spit out a food. There's no net gain. So what you spit out, whenever you take any cation, it might be calcium, potassium, magnesium, it might be ammonium, nitrogen, what you spit out is hydrogen. And hydrogen has no food value, so that's okay for you to give up. But hydrogen is what makes soils acidic. So buckwheat is a calcium lover. It's sucking up calcium constantly and often even breaking the bond between calcium and phosphorus in the process and making some phosphate availability. But also it takes in the calcium, it spits out the plants, then spits out the hydrogen, and that gives us that acid medium that increases phosphate availability so buckwheat's a pretty cool plant and great to have in any blend. Okay so I promised some health hints in this episode and the first of those strategies relates to a trace mineral called zinc. We just talked about the phosphate to zinc ratio but here we're talking about zinc relative to your health and longevity. So Zinc accumulates in a gland called the thymus gland, that's where it tends to head for when you consume zinc in food or supplements, and it's used by the thymus gland to make killer T cells. Now, that's a hugely important part of your immune system, so your immune system is zinc dependent, and the problem here is that 75% of us are zinc deficient, it ranks with magnesium as the world's largest deficiency. So, So that's hugely important with things like COVID running rampant, that we keep our zinc levels maximized. Why are so many of us deficient in zinc? Well, there are a variety of, of reasons, but one of the largest relates to our overconsumption of cereal grains. I mean, we start the day with with some cereal, some toast, and we have you know a sandwich for morning tea and a roll for lunch and pasta for dinner or whatever. It's cereals on cereals. It's a natural acid forms a zinc phytic acid forms an insoluble zinc phytate, and you excrete that material. So it's a that's a big issue. The other thing with zinc is relative to the health of the prostate gland and to a slightly lesser extent to the health of breast tissue and of course prostate cancer is the largest killer of men in many countries and breast cancer is the second largest killer of women so it's a fairly important thing to address root causes for example a healthy prostate on average has seven times more zinc than an enlarged prostate or or a cancerous gland so Really important that we look at this. Let's look at the mechanics of how zinc works relative to prostate health. Number one, cadmium is a primary root cause of cancer, Uh, the heavy metal cadmium. It tends to head straight for the prostate gland where it can initiate the changes that go on to become cancer. In fact, you can give a lab rat so many milligrams of cadmium per 100 grams of body weight and two months later, there's always, not sometimes, but always a tumour on the prostate. So, So it's a big player and it comes in from super phosphate in our soils and in this heavy metal that can last for a thousand years and accumulate when we've used phosphate for many years. So it's in our food chain in many instances. Now what's zinc got to do with it? Well zinc displaces cadmium from the prostate gland just as calcium can displace magnesium from the clay colloid a zinc can displace and that's hugely important. Now the other role of zinc relates to our problem with so many of us being overweight particularly with that the spear tie around the middle those love handles around the middle that's called adipose tissue and adipose tissue produces something called aromatase an enzyme called aromatase and aromatase takes our testosterone produced by our testes and converts it to estrogen and estrogen feeds prostate cancer so as we get fatter and fatter we develop breasts from that excess estrogen and at some point we become uh, impotent basically from too much estrogen in the scenario of course of course it's um, it's very much testosterone that drives libido both in men and women so what's zinc got to do with it? zinc is a powerful aromatase inhibitor so if you're slightly overweight or grossly overweight the supplementation of zinc is absolutely essential okay that's the zinc story number two the second mineral that we're also deficient in is magnesium. Now, magnesium is is linked to basically our largest killer remains coronary heart disease with cancer breathing down its neck, but that every aspect of coronary heart disease can be linked in some way to magnesium. Everything, even things like angina and skipping a beat with your heart or high, high blood pressure is huge. I mean, there are multiple studies now linking magnesium deficiency to high blood pressure. I mean, muscle cramping you know, is a classic magnesium deficiency symptom, and often a heart attack can be initiated by a simple cramping of the heart muscle. Migraines, 17 papers linking magnesium deficiency to migraine headaches, epilepsy. Uh, h- how did we lose so much magnesium? Why is it such a big deficiency? Part of that relates to stress. Now, we have something called the flight or fight response, where, you know, originally we walked out of our cave, there was a saber-toothed tiger. We had this massive spike of a whole range of things including adrenaline where we fought the hardest we ever fought or we ran the fastest we've ever run neither of which were very successful against that but at least we had a go uh, and if you ask people about their anxiety almost everyone acknowledges they're anxious to some degree and that anxiety is a form of flight or flight response and every aspect of the flight or flight response is driven by magnesium. And so when you're in that varying stages of anxiety, you are sucking and drawing from magnesium. And it's a major reason why so many of us are magnesium deficient. So how do you fix it? Well, the problem is that oral supplementation, if you've been deficient for some period, it's called chronic magnesium deficiency, oral supplementation can be ineffective because one of the side effects of magnesium deficiency is that your gut lining no longer absorbs magnesium very well. So how can you beat that? Well, we have a supplement called MagSorb, which is transdermal magnesium. You spray it under your arms, under your feet or on your body, and it's absorbed directly through the skin. The suggestions that it can be 10 times more efficient, but you can also use just the old school concept of Epsom salts baths. So that's two cups of magnesium sulfate. In a bath of hot water and half an hour lying in there nice and relaxing you need to do that at night because you will not go out and work or you won't feel like it because you'll be so relaxed and then you'll understand the link between magnesium and all-important relaxation so number three uh, relates to you know the secret of longevity pretty big tip this one i don't think i can give a bigger one so a study of centenarians which involved uh, thousands of hundred-year-olds plus across the globe. In fact, there were two studies happening at the same time. They tried to find out how did these people make the long haul where most of us don't. What was their secret? And they couldn't find a common denominator initially. There were people who drank, people who there was not many people who smoked, but there were people who drank, people who didn't, people who had four hours sleep, people who had eight, people who had saturated fat, people who didn't. Uh, and then they found it it was common to every single centenarian in both studies. And what they discovered was low fasting blood insulin was the secret to longevity. And of course, we've got these other studies where we've looked at um, restricting calories and we've shown in guinea pigs and rats, you can increase lifespan by two and a half times. And then finally, we completed a primate study last year. So it's closer to humans. There was a 150% increase in lifespan. If you could maintain calories at 2000 calories a day, well, that's that's the same story, because an increase in blood sugar, uh, your pancreas produces insulin and spikes insulin. So maintaining that lower calorie intake reduces the amount of insulin. Now, insulin speeds cell division. The Hayflick limit, the scientist tells us, we've got a certain number of cell divisions in a lifespan, and a lifespan's 120 years, we know, because people have made it to that long. You don't want to speed that. Uh, and insulin speed cell division so 120 becomes 100 becomes 80 becomes 60 depending on how much insulin is present hence the link between low fasting blood insulin and longevity so one of the strategies that i'll share is download a chart of the glycemic index that relates to how fast a food sparks your blood sugar sparks the production of insulin and shortens your life basically and so you try and eat minimize your consumption of things on the high end of the glycemic index table you can eat as much as you like on the low end and sort of a middle range is acceptable as well so when you check that you'll find things like potatoes for example are higher than pure white table sugar Um, and sweet potatoes uh, have got a GI of 30 potatoes are 90 sugar is 70 Uh, and so the potatoes are something, you know, that, that are an issue in terms... Of, but there are ways you could, There's always ways around everything. Now, if you take something like chia seed with very, very high soluble fibre and put it into a pepper shaker and grind it onto potatoes, the introduction of a soluble fibre slows the release of those sugars. And that's what the glycemic index is based on, the presence of fibre in foods that determines how fast a food spikes, your blood sugar, increases your insulin... And shortens your life so there's a couple of good tips so the second strategy we're going to discuss is, is the use of silica now you're probably aware that silica is very much the flavor of the month as we speak relative to mineral nutrition you know it's strange to some people to recognize the importance when we consider that silica is the most abundant mineral on the planet. It's the center of the earth. It's clays or aluminosilicates, sands or silica, it's everywhere. But we now know we need it in plant available form in a form called monosilicic acid. And it's simply not there. There's 10, 15, 20 parts per million in most conventionally farmed soils. And what we need is 100 parts per million. Now organic soils are usually double that. So we do know something we're doing in the chemical extractive model is killing a group of organisms called silica-solubilizing organisms. And reducing the availability of that mineral. So, so, what does silica offer us? Well, the list is huge. It really is massively important, and it's not even considered an essential nutrient. I mean, the starting point is just simply cell strength. Calcium and silica together govern cell strength. That basically, you know, that's the proactive approach to reduce disease. You just strengthen the cell wall, you buckle the hyphae of the invading disease, you wear off the mandibles of the sap sucking insect. So that's huge, and cell strength is more than that, because cell strength is stem strength, so you don't have lodging. Stem strength, so you present the leaf better and create better photosynthesis. Phloem and xylem, which cart nutrients and water into the plant, are based on silica. So you improve silica, you improve transportation of, of nutrition in and around the plant, which is a big, big story. And then there's a the new finding with silica. The finding that silica may well be, the plant available silica, may well be the most important of all immune elicitors. Now, this is relatively new, but silica boosts plant immunity. And what's exciting about that, as I've said before, is that there are no exceptions. Everything known that boosts immunity also boosts yield and boosts your bank account at the end of the season. So that's a pretty good story. But what we're talking here is silica-specific to phosphate solubilization? So you can use this material and get all these other benefits as well as increased phosphate. And one of the cheaper ways you can do that, you can use things like calcium silicate, which is a good fertiliser and gives a great silica response, but you can even use cheaper things like basalt rock. Uh, There's a very good study I was just reading called Amending Highly Weathered Soils with Finely Ground Basalt Rock by Gilman, Burkett and Coventry, some Australian researchers, in a journal called Applied Geochemistry. And basically, they chronicle the increase in silica availability, along with those multiple other benefits, uh, associated with crusher dust, which $15 a tonne, is really, really one of the bargains out there. There's a whole other phenomenon called paramagnetism associated with crusher dust and calcium and a bunch of other trace minerals uh, that it really is something worth considering uh, and the silica which is quite high in all basalts uh, is what is triggers this release of phosphorus so that's a good option fulvic acid is another wonderful option fulvic acid of course is part of the humate family which also includes humic acid but fulvic acid there is quite some significant research relative to the use of fulvic acid to solubilize phosphorus Now, one study that springs to mind was a Chinese study published in the Journal of Soil Science and Plant Nutrition, and it was called The Effect of Fulvic Acid on the Phosphorus Availability in Acid Soils. And what they showed was a two to three times increase in microbial biomass associated with the fulvic acid treatment, and they also saw this significant increase in organic matter associated with uh, higher dose fulvic acid. See, fulvic acid contains carboxyls and phenolic compounds that increase the negative charge on soil particles. You're basically effectively increasing your cation exchange capacity. And so with that uh, increased negative charge, you can actually outcompete P for what's called absorption, and that releases some P into soil solution. And that's part of the story of how fulvic acid works in terms of releasing phosphorus, along with all the other things that it does. You know, it's an auxin-like hormone that increases root size and so the roots can harness more or scavenge for more phosphorus because you've got larger roots larger leaves so you can pump more sugars down and feed the organisms that solubilize phosphorus as part of the story of fulvic acid it boosts bacteria uh, and of course phosphate solubilizing bacteria in the mix much more so than humic acid which boosts fungi and so fulvic acid is really something worth considering in terms of increasing now I, I believe there's a real gap here in the research looking at higher-dose fulvic acid and its potential. Now, my new research farm is the very large apple farm. That's had 43 years of chemicals, and this is one of the benefits of fulvic acid that I'll share with you. The secret for cleaning out those chemical residues, you know, I'm turning it into a completely chemical-free regenerative model, fingers crossed, in a single season, and so far so good. We've dodged a few bullets, but it's looking pretty amazing, even in very dry conditions. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things relative to that. I mean, phosphate was quite high in the soil, and but you'd think, we well, you'd never go through and try and grow a crop with no applied phosphate, but we have. Uh, we've relied upon the release of phosphorus. A Part of that story is that to remove the chemical residues, three kilos of a good quality leonardite-based soluble fulvic acid powder, and we did that twice, but three kilos per hectare is the rate that's been shown to remove... Uh, a huge variety of chemicals there's a couple of exceptions uh, but most of them it can pull out and we've seen that we've measured this massive increase in microbial biomass with those higher doses of fulvic acid we've just actually completed some studies on one of my other research farms just on fast crops like lettuces and chinese cabbages at rates of fulvic acid powder of three five seven and ten kilograms and Honestly, you've got to see 10 kilograms per hectare to believe it with these fast-growing crops. I mean, it's double the size. It's much higher bricks. The microbial biomass counts are phenomenal, uh, phenomenal increases, but it's just not been researched. I think there's massive potential for higher-dose fulvic acid, and uh, we're certainly looking at that as we speak. So the next thing we're going to talk about is mob grazing, and of course, you know, we've talked about the definition of science as adherence to natural laws and principles. And in that context, you could say, okay, what was the most productive area in the history of mankind? And the most productive, produced more biomass than any other area per square metre ever, were the Great Plains in the US. And you could say, well, how did that happen? It was driven by huge herds of bison with a predator effect that keep their heads together, close, not being too choosy about what they ate, huge amounts of urine, huge amounts of dung, massive biostimulation. And interestingly, the herd moved on at about four inches. And so that's very much the model of mob grazing. If you've got 10 inches above ground of plant matter, you'll have 10 inches of root that supports that plant matter and they support each other. If you graze down to six inches, the roots prune themselves to six inches. If you graze to four, the roots prune to four. If you graze to two, you've got two inches of main root structure. If you graze to the dirt, because your dad said you've got to go to the dirt boy you're missing half of it, you've got nothing. It is really quite silly when you realise the basic principles. You've got no solar panel, you've got no feeding of microbes, you've got no fixing of humus, no creation of humus, no fixing of nitrogen, all of the things that happen as part of that process. And that's why the simple process of mob grazing large numbers of animals for a short time. And basically, it's almost like you can't have too many animals in that context, but a short time. And there's another phenomenon relative to, to pea release. Well, there's two phenomena. Cow manure is very high in bacillus subtilis, which are very good phosphate-solubilizing bacteria. But there's also the form of nitrogen found in that mass of 100 litres per cow per night of urine, for example, filled with urea but the nitrogen is in the ammonium form because urea converts very quickly to the ammonium form so what you've got is a cation that the plant has taken and that attempt to balance itself taking up constantly the ammonium form of nitrogen and spitting out hydrogen which is that acidic mineral that generates phosphate release so that's happening in in quite a large way when you've got mob grazing happening. So it's a tremendously beneficial strategy. I think it should be legislated for because it also happens to be one of the fastest way we can build humus and save the planet with that carbon sequestration. Now finally, we'll just talk about how you can make rock phosphate much more available. Rock phosphate or guano, how you can make the the phosphate much more soluble uh, and get a much better response with that applied phosphate over a much longer period. So one thing we've discovered about both guano and things like soft rock phosphate is that they actually contain naturally contain very high levels of phosphate-solubilizing bacteria so if you just add some carbon perhaps some compost some humates some ferments and probably one of the best carbon-based substances of all in that instance is molasses you just add that into the rock phosphate and you've kicked started that whole process of solubilizing the phosphate component. You're going to also add something like Bacillus subtilis. It's, I think there needs to be a lot more research on this incredibly hardy, incredibly versatile bacteria called Bacillus subtilis. Of course, it's already out there as a natural fungicide, but it does much more than that. It's a very good phosphate solubilizer, but it gives a plant growth promotion response and, of course, plant protection from a whole range of diseases. And it, it's an immunolicit. So, Boost yield. You. you can get all of that in your rock phosphate when you add some molasses, some carbon, some humates, and some bacillus subtilis. So that's a pretty good little tip. Okay, my friends, it's time for a little humour. As you probably recall, if you've heard me live, that um, there's always some humour to, to get your lungs breathing in some oxygen and help your concentration. And no exception on the podcasts that you've probably come to know. So, so, I've just come back from North Queensland. I did a two day course uh, at Mackay just a couple of days back. And so, I'm going to tell a joke about a North Queensland farmer. So, an elderly North Queensland farmer had dressed up one of his farm dams to create a really appealing swimming hole for his grandchildren. He brought in a few truckloads of sand to create a small beach. He'd surrounded the large pond with palm trees, he'd put up some picnic tables, he put up a barbecue, there were flower beds and a small mixed orchard surrounding the dam. And the dam was even equipped with reed beds and, and a rock waterfall to, to help cleanse the water. And, and the associated pump required also served to irrigate the mangoes, the sour sop, the lychees, the mango oh my goodness, that's an incredibly delicious fruit. And this night, it was a balmy full moon night when the the farmer picked up a 20-litre bucket from the shed and decided he'd head down to the dam and harvest some ripe Bowen mangoes. It was December, that's when they come into into full ripeness. And as he approached his dam, 500 metres from the house, he heard female chatter and laughter and realised that a group of attractive young women were swimming naked in his pond, not wanting to seem voyeuristic. He banged the side of his bucket loudly to announce his arrival. The woman immediately immersed themselves up to their necks and one of them yelled, we're not coming out until you leave. The farmer yelled back, for God's sake, I don't have the slightest interest of making you leave the water, even though you're trespassing my property. I just come down here to feed the crocodile. My my goodness, I I just returned from a two-day seminar, as I mentioned, and while I was up in North Queensland, I visited a very famous crocodile park where they demonstrate a crocodile attack and it's the only place that still demonstrates that within Australia. Steve Irwin's um, park no longer does that because of workplace health and safety issues. And basically you're sitting in a small arena surrounding a very, very murky pond in a fenced area with a a small beach front, and a demonstrator then describes the reptilian brain and how we make a mistake attributing human emotions to something that has no emotions at all. It's just basically an instinctual killing machine And he talks about how impossible it is to escape those jaws, really, if you're caught, you're drowned within minutes and then the crocodile actually shakes you and tears you apart and so forth. It's much worse than a shark. But as he's walking the small foreshore, And telling you this horror story, you can't see the crocodile at all. You've seen him earlier when he stands on a little platform and hangs out a bit of a chicken body. But this time he's just walking beside the shore. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this massive creature launches itself onto the shore, stopping right at his feet with these massive jaws just snapping with this huge hollow sound. My grandson, who was with me at the time, screamed uncontrollably. Or, or at least i said it was him <laughs> and i mean after that you head off on this glass sided paddle steamer through a really large paperback swamp that is basically infested with dozens and dozens of these jurassic beasts and you're sitting there in your chair with the glass sides and these things are cruising beside the boat i'm literally inches from you and basically then they they lurch and they snap and they fight to receive the offered chicken carcasses it really is something to put on every bucket list i've never experienced i've never really seen anything quite like it before and it really is quite spectacular okay folks let's get to the fun part of this podcast let's start talking about how you can make your own microbes how you can access your own phosphate for free look i've said it before it's my belief everyone needs a brewing tank on the farm. It can be so insanely simple when I'm out there doing it uh, on my farms. I shake my head in disbelief because it's so easy and it's so beneficial and it's so inexpensive. So the first phosphate-busting inoculum that you can create involves the simplest of all brewing setups. All you need is a second-hand 1,000-litre tote or, or shuttle, as some people call them. You need a $5 escape valve that you can buy from a brewing shop and that's a total cost, the whole thing costs $100 for the setup. Beneficial anaerobes are just so easy to multiply. I'll I'll give you a recipe in a moment but first let's talk about what they are and why they're so good. So Professor Teruahiga is a Japanese scientist who developed something called EM or effective microbes. He was one of the first to recognise that anaerobes aren't all the bad guys like we've been told perhaps. In fact, our skin and gut is lined with multiple strains of Lactobacillus literally in their trillions. Those same organisms are in the rumen. They're on the leaf surface and they're in the soil. And they obviously have got a purpose in the great scheme of things. There's nothing that happens accidentally in a perfect blueprint called nature. It turns out that Lactobacillus and other beneficial anaerobes that include things like actinomycetes, fermenting fungi, something called purple non-sulfur bacteria, they actually perform similar a similar suite of invaluable roles that's performed by aerobic organisms in the soil. They fix nitrogen, they solubilize phosphorus, they solubilize potassium, they protect from disease, they boost plant growth and root growth. And, and what's quite unique is that they actually stimulate the entire aerobic component of the soil food web, like government handouts in a pandemic. Across Asia, there are now multiple localised versions of lactobacillus brews. But here in Australia, one of my personal favourite creations is an inoculum I developed called BAM. So I'll just teach you because it's mine and I can tell you how to do it. Not that many people who sell inoculums would tell you how to do it for nothing, but that's not what I'm here for. Uh, Here's how you can multiply BAM in a 1,000 litre container to the point that a need only costs literally a few dollars per hectare. So if you take a 1,000 litre, a container, you add 50 litres of molasses, you add 100 litres of the BAM concentrate and you add 850 litres of water into the tank. Now you seal the tank and fit an escape valve for the CO2 that we mentioned and basically you use pH as a guideline. So of course you need a pH meter for this. When the pH has dropped down to 3.5, which usually takes about 10 days, then basically the job's done and you've just created a thousand litres of a living fertiliser that will stay stable for over a year. I mean, it's so simple. You just put those things in and walk away come back 10 days later and you just made a thousand litres of this wonderful inoculum. I'll give you some examples of how good it is. There's so many things that you can use it for, but I used BAM at one to 500, so one litre to 500 litres on my new orchard. I combined it with phthalic acid and molasses, so you're kind of sending them boys off to work with a lunchbox, in what's called a drench to drip off foliar application. So that that was you know you had to drive at one kilometre an hour with the blow mister, three thousand litres of solution per hectare, and the attempt was to resurrect a part of the orchard that the owner, the previous owner, said, look, you bulldoze that out. I've ignored it for the last few years. The trees look dead for all intents and purposes, and you just got to see the remarkable turnaround. And that cost, well, six litres, you know, five, we do 3,000 litres, 500 to 1, six litres at a cost of about $2. I mean, it's, it's virtually free. We fertigate regularly. In fact, every time we fertigate, we'll put some BAM with it, that brood BAM at about 10 litres per hectare, which is $3 per hectare. Do you see why I might get a bit excited about how cost-effective this whole thing can be? Let's talk about some other inoculums that can be a benefit relative to phosphate solubilisation. Mycorrhizal fungi are another very well-researched phosphate solubilizing strategy, and they have multiple other side benefits. Basically, they burrow into the root and they give you a tenfold increase in root surface area. And that really, really increases your access to super immobile minerals like phosphate and zinc. And of course, then that big massive extension to filaments is pumping out acid exudates, as fungi tend to do. And that helps to break the bond between calcium and phosphorus. So it's a nice little package. And of course, there are many other benefits that come with mycorrhizal fungi. There's various natural acids produced by phosphate-solubilizing organisms, or PSOs, as they're called. And these include things like citric acid, lactic acid, acetic acid, gluconic acid, and malic acid. So you can source commercial bacillus blends. In fact, we have one. Uh, that includes things like Bacillus megaterium, which is a specialist phosphate solubilizer, and, and Bacillus subtilis, which is another multi-function phosphate solubilizer. And basically, these blends will produce a mixture of the acids I just mentioned. And you can brew them, so it makes it a really cost-effective solution for phosphate release. There's a fungus called Aspergillus niger, which is what's used to make citric acid commercially. And it turns out that of all the acids, citric acid is the most powerful of the p solubilizing natural acids, so pretty good thing if you can get your hand on that one. And you can build that up or multiply that in the latter stages of a compost, so that you're bringing in this phosphate solubilizer and the citric acid it produces. Worm juice, a wonderful substance, of course, that's just pouring water through the worm bed. And basically what you've got there is that earthworms incubate in their gut a completely unique family of microbes that aren't found elsewhere in the soil. They're incubated in the gut, and when you run water through an earth bed, an earthworm castings, you've got what's called worm juice. Now, the organisms include things like Azotobacter in quite high numbers, and zodobacter of course, is a very well-known nitrogen fixer that is also a very effective phosphate solubilizer. These organisms produce substantial amounts of an enzyme called phosphatase, and there's two other key guys in there that produce various acids. One of them's aspirillium and another's called several strains of Certamonas. They're found in large numbers in liquid vermicast, and both of them, amongst many other things, including plant growth promotant and disease protection, both of them are also known to solubilize phosphorus. Another concept that I'm really, really keen on, I've not done it on the new farm, and boy, I'm overdue, I'm going to do it very shortly, It's called protozoa tea. Here's the story. Protozoa are lacking in many soils when you do soil food web tests, and they can be brewed up really soon. For some reason, they love loosened hay. All three varieties of protozoa are found in very high numbers, and loosen hay usually it's better to source an organic source of hay because the insecticide for lucerne flea kills protozoa but here's how simple it is again a thousand liter recipe you can do this in 20 liters or a 200 liter drum but i'm giving you the larger recipe that i use on the farms a bale of lucin in a thousand liter tank with 20 liters of molasses and 20 liters of liquid fish you aerate it for two days so this is an aerated model it's not anaerobic like the other one we talked about and that basically should produce a tank full of protozoa. Now, you know about protozoa probably. Part of their role is to eat bacteria and basically spit out the excess nitrogen because they've got a 30 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio and bacteria 5 to 1. So 6,5 makes 30 and you only need one nitrogen. So you're spitting five units of ammonium nitrogen into soil solution. The plant says, you beauty. And that's one of the major roles of protozoa in the soil is cycling nitrogen, but they also cycle phosphate from that microbial biomass. And it's really important that that biomass be cycled. And basically, protozoa are very good at that. Now, they've got other roles. They're the favourite food of earthworms. So all the benefits we just talked about relative to those organisms and everything that comes with earthworms, including what's in their castings, which is seven times more phosphorus than surrounding soils. So It's a really nice little package to bring back your earthworms with protozoa And then finally, they're also known as second only to mycorrhizal fungi as root zone architects, where basically they increase this massive amount of branching, particularly on cereal crops, but on multiple crops, which of course then gives you more access to the very immobile phosphate anion. So protozoa big fan, wonderful results. You'll see the earthworms back in quite a short time. And finally, trichoderma are really one of my favorites. They control over 30 different diseases with a combination of mycoparasitism. So that's a hard word to say, mycoparasitism, that's it, and immune elicitation. Now, they stimulate root growth, they build humus, they're very really powerful cellulose digesters, and they release phosphorus. And I'm going to teach you a simple little way just to conclude the podcast of how you can make a 1,000 litres of your own trichoderma inoculum. Here's how you do it. So what you're aiming to do is to create a chicken netting cube which has a pallet sitting as a base, and you've got four steel posts at the corners of the pallet, which you've driven into the ground, and then you wrap chicken netting around the steel posts. So you've created a wire netting cube, basically, that holds about a cubic metre, of whatever we're going to put in it. So what are we going to put in it? We're going to combine 500 litres of straw with 500 litres of organic cow manure, equal amounts of cow manure and straw and mix them thoroughly together and then fork the first 30 centimetre layer. So you're using a large fork and you fork that into your cubic metre that you've created, your bin, uh, but a 30 centimetre layer. And now you basically take your inoculum and you combine it with quite a large amount of water and have a little pump handy and pump inoculum and water and totally drenched that first layer then you add your next 30 centimeter layer totally drench it and your next and your next and repeat the process until basically you fill the bin then with it breathing on all sides including under the palate you can see visibly the trichoderma the gray green hyphae taking off and it's a very very quick kind of composting process it's just four weeks and you've created a 1,000 litres of trichoderma inoculum. Okay, this is probably time to end the session of drinking at the fire hose. <laughs> I hope you survived. Please, if you've enjoyed it, share it with friends and perhaps uh, offer a, a written review. And I really look forward to talking to you again next month. I haven't even decided what I'm going to talk about, but I promise you it'll be fun. Thanks for listening.